so glad you could join us for mornings at YCVC today. We want to thank you for being a part of our online family and we hope that this message encourages you, blesses you and helps you grow in your walk with him. So let's get into the word. So good morning church, uh, it's good to be together. Um, we always have a bit of the school holiday remnant, been a family uh, heavy uh, if that's the right word, church, um, but it's still great to gather together, uh, school holidays or not. And, and so this week, uh, the week before Easter, we're, we're going to finish up our Christology series. Um, and so Christology, we, we've been talking about the study and the nature, study of the nature and work of Jesus Christ. What that really means is, who is Jesus and what has he done? And so I've been encouraging us uh, as followers of Jesus to to major in Christology. And wh- what I mean by that is to fix our eyes on Jesus. <clears throat> uh, to, to follow Paul's example where he says, I want to know Christ. Uh, Paul, who, who knew Jesus deeply, who had encountered the risen and glorified Lord on the road to Damascus, uh, who, who wrote most of the New Testament or much of the New Testament, unpacking what it means to follow Jesus, still had as his ultimate goal in life to know Christ. Uh, and so uh, my hope is uh, that we don't reduce Jesus down to five sermons. It's, it's uh, not uh, something that I've hoped to do is like, let's, let's contain Jesus within five sermons, but to inspire us towards adoration, towards exploration. Uh, this is the work of the Christian life. Of course, yes, we're called to go and make disciples, uh, uh, to make Jesus known. But the work of our lives, the calling on us is to know Jesus. Um, because as we press into knowing Jesus more and more, then that will flow into everything else uh, as we serve him. Uh, and so thank you for reading for us this morning, Jeanette. That, that passage has been our template throughout this series of, of exploring who Jesus is. Uh, and so uh, we've explored that Jesus is the image of and the fullness of God. That when we look at Jesus, we see uh, the fullness of God expressed to us. And if we want to know who who God is, what he's like, then we need only look at Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the image of and the fullness of God. And he's also the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the one in whom and through whom all things came into being. He's the one who all things are made for. He's the one who holds all things together. We've explored that he is the head of everything. He's the supreme authority over everything that exists that we can see and everything that exists that we can't see. Jesus is the head over, but uniquely and specifically is also the head of the church, which is his body. Because no other entity apart from his physical body as he walked the earth, no other entity is described as his body. And so we, the church, are... Uh, directly related to Jesus as our head in that sense. And last week we explored that he is the firstborn from among the dead, that yes, he he died and rose again, but but not that his death and resurrection was a one-off thing, that his resurrection is the promise of our own resurrection and the promise of new life that we can live today in his name. And so this week we go on to explore a little bit further what is accomplished in his death. As we look forward to, obviously we're going to visit these ideas and themes next week over the Easter weekend, but as we look forward to the Easter weekend, from Palm Sunday, the the day that Jesus was adored and welcomed into Jerusalem and worshipped as the King, we look forward to the day that he was crucified. We look forward to it as in we look forward in time to it in that sense, but we also look forward to it, not in the 
ah, oh, we can't wait for Jesus to die sense, but in the, in the sense that we call it Good Friday, even though it represents the death of Jesus because it means good for all of creation. And so this week we explore Jesus as being the one who reconciled all things. And so if we pick up in verse 19 and 20 of Colossians chapter 1, it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Uh, And so to reconcile something is to restore it to friendly relations. So to reconcile two people, you restore them to a friendly relationship to one another. But it also means, and you know, our, our financial people would know that you also need to reconcile your bank balances or bank accounts with something else. So I, I don't know exactly what it is. That's not my forte. But, but to reconcile also means to make consistent with another thing. So to reconcile your bank account with your expenses, you're making sure that they match, that they are the same. And so Jesus is the one who restored friendly relations between us and God, but he's also the one that makes us consistent with God. And we'll explore what that means. He reconciled all things, it says, by his blood. Jesus made all things right with God through his blood. And so here, all things means, funny enough, all things. And it says things in heaven and things on earth. This isn't just referring to two separate spaces or categories. It's uh, a linguistic uh, term called a merism, uh, which means you refer, refer to the opposite ends of things to describe those ends and everything in between. So when Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he doesn't just mean I showed up at the start and I'll show up again at the end. He means that I am the first thing and the last thing and everything in between. And so to say that Jesus reconciled all things, things in heaven and things on earth, it's to say that he reconciled all things that are things, be they heavenly things, be they earthly things, be they anything in between. Not just people, but all of creation, all of the cosmos are reconciled to God. There's this Old Testament uh, Hebrew word, which if someone was a Hebrew speaker, they'd probably say I'm butchering it, but uh, shalom or salam, which we we kind of roughly translate as peace, but but it means that everything is in its rightful place. It means prosperity and well-being and flourishing everything the way that God designed it to be. That's, that's what shalom means. And so for Jesus to reconcile all things, the idea that we're looking at here is him returning all things to a state of shalom. The, the New Testament phrase that picks up that idea is that the kingdom of God has come. That in the kingdom of God, all things are reconciled, are, are in a state of shalom. They're, they're as they should be the way that God designed them. And so all things are reconciled by Jesus' blood. Uh, it reminds me of uh, my friend Steve Frost uh, a couple of years ago spoke here and he, he talked about the great dragnet of grace. That, that you know, when we think of fishing in the Old Testament, in, in the New Testament, in biblical times, we're not thinking of a fishing line drawing one fish out of a time. We're thinking of a great big net that scoops up everything. The good fish, the bad fish, the trash, the gumboots and everything. And and that, that is how God's grace has been cast to capture up all of 
creation to reconcile it to himself. And, and we too are caught up in that great dragnet of grace. We are part of the all things. You know, somewhere between heaven and earth, in all things being reconciled, we are caught up in that. And he's achieved this, the Apostle Paul says, by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. This great reconciling is through sacrifice, not conquest. It's through the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body. And so this is about what Jesus achieved on the cross, that he reconciled all things to God on the cross. And so I do have three things to talk about that today, um, which is helpful. So uh, big people, little people and everything in between. I want to talk about three things related to that, that Jesus accomplished on the cross. That means that we can be reconciled to God. Um, I'll give you a, a cheat seat. They are that he transformed us, that he paid our debt and he disarmed our enemies. He transformed us, he paid our debt and he disarmed our enemies. Uh, but I want to warn us before we jump into those three things that this isn't the entirety of what the cross accomplished. Uh, I remember a phrase, C.S. Lewis talking about in mere Christianity, about kind of trying to describe what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And he talked about how ideas help us to understand what Jesus did on the cross, but we must realize that the reality is so much greater than our comprehension. No image, no metaphor, no description of what Jesus accomplished on the cross captures the fullness of what it is. It's, it's beyond what we can fully understand. But I want to talk about three things that, that help us connect with how Jesus has reconciled us. And so firstly, he transformed us. He, he changed us. And so in verse 21 to, to 22, we, we get that. He says, once we were an alienated from God and we were enemies in, our, in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you to Christ, sorry, by Christ's physical body through death to present you as holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you caught it from my bumbling reading of that, he has reconciled us. He has changed us. And so remember, one of the, the meanings of reconciles is to make one thing consistent with another thing. And so the Apostle Paul says that once our nature was inconsistent with God. Though we were created in his image, we had sinned and we'd become enemies of God. We are alienated from him because of our evil behavior. So we're alienated, separated from God because nothing unholy can stand in the presence of the holy. And then he says, but now. That's what we were. Now, through Jesus' death, we are holy without blemish and free from accusation. To be holy is to be like God, not with his power and his authority all over, over the cosmos, all over everything, but is to be like him in his holiness, in his purity. We've been made without blemish, which doesn't mean we don't have pimples. It, it means there's no guilt, no stain of guilt upon us. And to be, we've been made to be free from accusation, which doesn't mean that no one is saying anything nasty about us. It means that there is no basis for accusation against us. The enemy, the devil, might, 
say all that he wants, but, but Jesus has made us free from accusation in the sense that there is nothing to accuse us of now. We've been made like Jesus. We've been made consistent with God through the cross and able to be in the presence of God. We've been reconciled. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's, it's captured succinctly as this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have been made to match who God is. We've been reconciled with him. Weirdly, when I think about this, I think about the movie Grease, which I know we've got some Grease fans uh, amongst our, our church. Um, but I think about the movie Grease, and so in the movie Sandy, who is kind of this representation of a good, clean person, uh, wants this guy who's kind of a bit of a deadbeat, really, I think, from my perspective. Sorry if you're a... I don't even know his name. What's his name? John, you'd know. John Travolta. No, he's got some name in the movie, though. Denny. Denny. She wants Denny. And, and so to be reconciled with Denny, to be in relationship with Denny, she becomes a deadbeat loser herself. And she starts smoking and, and she puts on like the bad people clothes, which is obviously represented by black leather, because uh, that means you're bad. And, and so she becomes like him in order to be with him. Uh, but I think, you know, as much as some people enjoy that movie, that's a horrible standard that she has to become a loser to be with Danny when she was good and holy and pure to start off with. Maybe not fully in the Jesus sense of it, but in Hollywood's characterization. But that's not what has happened here. Yes, Jesus has condescended to earth. He's become fully human like us, but without sin. He hasn't become like us in that he's been a deadbeat loser like us. He became human like us so that we might become like him. Holy, without blemish and free from accusation. And so the first thing I want us to grab this morning that Jesus achieved on the cross when he reconciled us is that he transformed who we are that we might be like him so that we might be with him. Firstly, he transformed us, and secondly, he paid our debt. Because even though we've been transformed from unholy to holy by the cross, there's still the, dish, the issue of our debt that has been accrued. In Romans uh, chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. And if you look, if you've got a Bible that's got referencing things in it, it will point you back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 and following, where it says, The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so apart from then a picture of the enormous freedom that God gives us with small limitation to, in order to keep us uh, in good relationship with him, uh, it's also a picture of the consequences of stepping outside the guidelines that God has provided for our life. The wages of sin is death and this has been a problem from the very beginning. So there is a debt accrued by humanity and there is a debt accrued by you and I. 
And so Jesus has transformed us, but there's still the issue of the debt to pay. And so we can think of it like this. You might have stopped using your credit card. You might not be accruing further debt, but you can rest assured that your bank will still want you to pay the debt that you've already accrued. It doesn't disappear the day you stop using the credit card. You might have stopped committing crime, but you still have to pay the legal consequences for the crimes already committed. Jesus has transformed us. There still is the issue of our legal debt. And so if we flip over the chapter from Colossians chapter 1 to Colossians chapter 2, this is what Paul addresses. In verse 13 and 14, he says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And so Jesus has forgiven our debt. He's cancelled it. He's nailed it to the cross. Now the question is, how has he nailed it to the cross? Sin itself, debt, cannot itself be nailed to the cross. You can't nail debt to a cross. You might like to nail your bank statement to the cross, but the bank probably, it's not what's written on the paper. It exists apart from the bank statement. So you can't nail debt to a cross and so how did Jesus nail it to a cross? Well, in 1 Peter 2.24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds we've been healed. And so Jesus bore our debt, our sin, in his body. And he was nailed to the cross bearing it. And so the price, the, the wages of our sin that would have destroyed us was paid by him. And so there is nothing left to pay because it's already been paid. The wages of sin was death, but Jesus has suffered death on our behalf. So Jesus on the cross, by the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body, he transformed who we are. That we might be holy and righteous and without blemish. But he's also paid for our debt, that there might be nothing left to pay. Our price has been paid, our sentence has been served. And so that means we need to pay nothing, we need to do nothing to earn our reconciliation with God. He transformed us, he paid our debt, and thirdly, he disarmed our enemies. Our debt is paid. Our being is transformed and our enemies have been disarmed. Sticking in Colossians chapter 2 in verse 15, it goes on to say, after saying our, our sin has been nailed to the cross with Jesus, it says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so Jesus disarmed and triumphed the powers and authorities. Uh, in Bible speak, this is a reference to our spiritual enemy. We can see that in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, where similar phrases are used but made more clear. 
Here Paul says, put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers and authorities of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so when we are told that Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities, this isn't talking necessarily about earthly kings, though they come under that banner, and rulers. It's talking about our spiritual opposition in this world. And so in Ephesians he says, put on the armour of God because that's who our battle is against, but we need to remember that they have already been disarmed and made a spectacle of, triumphed over. That's why the, the armour of God is so effective. It's reminding the enemy, it's putting on the uniform of God and saying, remember, you lost already. In uh, John chapter 10, 10, Jesus describes the enemy as a, as a thief who comes only to steal, kill and destroy. And so Jesus has triumphed over them. In this life, they, they still seek to contend against us, but they have been disarmed, triumphed over and conquered. Jesus has already won the victory. And so on the cross, Jesus has reconciled all things to himself. That includes you and I being caught up in the great dragnet of God's grace. That we are collected together amongst the all things that have been reconciled to him. That means that he has transformed us. That we are no longer his enemies. We are no longer evil. We have been made holy and righteous without blemish. It means that he has paid our debt. That the bank balance, the, 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 the uh, legal bill against us has been paid by Jesus and so there's nothing left to pay. It was nailed to the cross in his body. And it means that our enemies have been defeated. They might still seek to make, himself, make themselves known in this life. They might seek to attack us but we live in an age where the enemy has been defeated and overcome. And so, what? Throughout this series, that's been our question, is, is so what? What does this mean for, for us today that, that Jesus has reconciled us? Well, firstly, the so what is we need to understand that this is made real in our life when we put our trust in Jesus. When we personally accept this truth when we put our trust in Jesus, it is made real in our life. We are transformed. It happened on the cross, but, but it is in that, that day that we put our trust in it that we personally experience the transformation, that we personally experience that our debts are paid, then we personally experience that the enemies uh, in the spiritual realm over our lives have been overcome by Jesus. He has done what we could not do for ourselves. But he, the other part of the so what is we need to accept that, that we not, don't need to do these things. We don't need to transform ourselves. Yes, we partner with the Holy Spirit as he works this out in our life, but we don't need to pay our debt because it's already been paid. We don't need to overcome our spiritual enemies because Jesus has already come them. We claim his victory 
not seek our own. And finally, the so what. Hannah, you can come in. The final so what of this whole series is that we owe him our lives, our thanks, our everything. To kind of wrap it all up, before we worship in song again, Um, I want to read from um, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which is uh, Paul's essential summing up of how we should respond to the first 11 chapters of Romans. But um, we could easily place these same words at the end of our Christology series and they were no less relevant. And so this is, I guess, my urging to myself and to all of us uh, in, in a space of so what? How do we respond to Jesus who is fully God, who's the creator of all things, who is the firstborn from amongst the dead, who is the reconciler of all things? How do we respond? Well, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, <coughs> to offer your bodies or yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We could translate that as, this is your reasonable response. Then he goes on to say, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. So let's pray. In view of who you are and in view of your mercy to us, Jesus, we want to offer our entire selves as a living sacrifice to you. We owe absolutely everything to you. And so as we offer in this moment with our, our minds, ourselves as living sacrifice, we know that in our humanity we are also quite fickle. And so we ask for the Holy Spirit's help to make our offering a reality. Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. As you head back into your week, we want to encourage you to stay in His Word, stay in His love, and stay strong in your faith. Don't forget to keep up to date with what's happening via Facebook, Instagram, or via our website at ycbc.church. See you soon.